Hi everyone, this is Steve Hargadon and welcome to the Future of Education series. It's Thursday, November 12, 2009, at least on the west coast of the U.S. And our guest is Larry Cuban, Emeritus Professor of Education at Stanford University and the author of Oversold and Underused, Computers in the Classroom, The Blackboard and the Bottom Line, Why Schools Can't Be Businesses, and Why Is It So Hard to Get Good Schools, among other books. Welcome, Larry. Uh, thank you, Steve. Glad to be here. Really delighted to have you here. Sure appreciate your taking the time. I'm going to do a brief overview of Illuminate right now to let you know about the session uh, and how this environment works. These, uh, the Future of Education is sponsored by Illuminate and Learn Central. Learn Central is the social network for educators that is the project I work on for Illuminate. It has this kind of uh, live synchronous environment built in that you can use for free. You can even hold your own webinar. So please do come to learncentral.org and visit us there. Coming up, uh, next week I'm actually traveling. So I, I may or may not be available for November 19th session, but uh, Howard Rheingold is coming on again for Howard's Brainstorms Part 2. There won't be any other sessions because of my travel until December 1st, when Dan Willingham is going to talk about why students don't like school. Julie Evans on December 2nd uh, to talk about uh, the Speak Up survey and Project Tomorrow. Curtis Bonk on December 3rd. His tome, The World is Open. Angela Myers on Classroom Habitudes. Sherry Toledo on her Web 2.0 Education survey. And then Elizabeth Kana on Virtual Schooling. Still to come, more Howard Rheingold, Jim G, Clay Shirky, Doc Searles, Tim Magner, David Thornburg, Dennis Lipke, and yes, Fun to tell us, Sir Ken Robinson in January. So if this is your first time in Illuminate, I wanted you to be aware of how you can participate. You have different ways of participating, including grabbing the microphone and speaking. Uh, Jane Cross just raised her hand. So you can see that's one way of getting my attention. In this participant window, you, have, um, uh, you can see the other participants, and you can also um, use the emoticons at the bottom of that window to express. So here's the applause, little hand, the clapping hand symbol. You can uh, do the smiley face. You can also uh, indicate you're confused with the confused look or thumbs down if you disagree. And to the left of that, that larger hand with the green up arrow is how you actually raise your hand if you'd like to take the microphone and speak. Now below the participant window is the chat area. And it's hard sometimes in a group of this size to see the chat as it goes past. So I'm going to recommend that you go up to View Layouts and change your layout to the wide layout. When you're in that wide layout, it's much easier to see the chat. Uh, the chat is really fun. We sure appreciate um, the, you know, the back channel that it provides. It does help us if you keep that chat uh, related to the session. Um, because otherwise it can be confusing if on. But it is there for your use, so we won't complain no matter how you use it. Uh, you can send the chat to another individual, and you do that by clicking on the drop-down box where it says this room, and you send it to another individual specifically. But do be aware that I will see all, as the moderator, I actually see all of those chats. Okay, we're going to let you use the whiteboard now. And I'm going to give you permissions to modify the whiteboard. And we're going to go to a map of the world. And look for the little wand with the red star at the end. Click on that, and then click on the map, and let us know where you're listening from. 
and we know we've got Australia, New Zealand, Indonesia, maybe. Thank you for letting me dismiss the tour page. Still going? Yeah, close the web door. Thank you for letting me know. Sorry, I wasn't looking in the chat. Okay, so all kinds of locations. India, you've got you there. Is someone actually listening in from uh, Africa? Be sure to shout yourself out. John says he put himself in Greenland on purpose. Let us know what the time and the weather are there. And we're going to switch over to the US map. And if you're in the United States, you can do the same thing. Okay, well, I'm going to turn that off, and we're going to move forward and, and hear from Larry now. Sure, glad to have everyone here. Larry, glad to have you here. And are you in um, Palo Alto or Stanford right now? Yeah, I'm, I'm at home now, yes. In that area. <laughs> and I'm in Palo Alto, yes. Yeah. So your ears, I think, may have been burning last night because uh, I interviewed Alan Collins and Rich Halverson on their book, Rethinking Education in the Age of Technology. And I don't know if you know it, but they, okay. they quote you quite extensively in that book. It was a it was a fascinating show. Is that a book you're familiar with? Uh, it it just came out. It did, I think. It's a 2009 copyright. And I don't mean. Yeah, that. no, I haven't seen it, but I saw that I saw that you were interviewing them. Well, good. Deb wants me to tell you we have 93 people listening. A good crowd for a Thursday night. So you and I spoke okay. uh, three years ago, and I'm going to put the link to the blog yeah. post from that in the chat. And the MP3 recording is there as well. When we talked last, uh, one of the things that that I mentioned in the blog post and was that you had talked about making sure not to put the blame on teachers for the lack of technology use but that this was a sort of a larger system sort of a problem. And the technology would become more in, in, integrated if the technologies actually helped the teachers to do their jobs better. Is that still an accurate statement? Is, does it reflect what we said, what you said, and is it still accurate? I, uh, yes, it is. Uh, there's uh, what I have seen. Uh, uh, there is no but here. Uh, what I, or however, the, what I have seen is that the push for getting more laptops, for example, into schools has been unrelenting. So that I do see, uh, again, uh, teachers are uh, certainly have far more access to technology as their students, and I see more use in classrooms than I did uh, uh, three years ago. And I've noted that, and uh, but the integration uh, issue uh, is is still alive and well. So you also mentioned that um, there was a, a push from the outside to use computers in the class, and does does it feel like that political push is still there? 
I, I would not classify it as much as a political, as much as a social and economic uh, pressure. The, the, the notion that uh, somehow the use of uh, laptops, desktops in school uh, classrooms uh, is somehow related to uh, future skills uh, in a knowledge-based society, that is uh, providing an awful lot of pressure for school board uh, uh, um, foundations uh, and levels of government to provide funding, except of course when uh, since the meltdown a lot of the funds have dried up. But nonetheless, that social and political pressure on schools uh, and on teachers to use more of the technology is still there. So in the work that you've done, how do you address that perception? Uh, uh, how do I, you mean, how do I argue against it? Well, argue against it, or, that try what you mean, it Steve? or try to put it into perspective. Yeah, I, I, uh, putting it into perspective is good. Uh, basically, uh, schools uh, reflect uh, society. So if right now we're in a period of, of uh, a, a strong centralization in the U.S., uh, a lot of uh, centralization at the state and federal levels of schooling. Uh, we're in a period uh, where there is uh, a great push for standards. And all of this is aimed for economic outcomes, which means that students are going to be ready for the job market. In, uh, in U.S. schools, what it really means is that every kid is expected to go to college. And, uh, and you need, therefore, access to technology, you need to know how to use it, and then the jobs that will flow after one gets a bachelor's degree are all going to be involved, in this case, high-tech devices, and therefore you have to be knowledgeable. So that, so that notion, that larger perspective is still in play. Uh, the, uh, the argument that I make is that schools do more than prepare people for college prepare people for the workplace. And as a consequence, technology can be a helpful tool, but it ain't the whole ballgame at all. Well, and I get the sense that, that part of the message you're, you're giving as well is that um, if, it, if the technology really were useful, we would be seeing it more. And that the example of that is what you see on a university campus. Uh, is that a question? Well, Steve? I didn't really, I didn't form it as a question, but it was intended as a question. So, is that accurate? That uh, that in part, uh, even though there are people who are heavy proponents of the use of technology in school, you would say that if in fact it were really helping teachers to do their jobs, that it would be more adopted. Well, uh, I, when I go into schools in different parts of the country, I see a lot of. Uh, desktop computers, uh, laptops, and I see teachers and kids using them inside class, outside class, like the university campus. There's no question about that. There is certainly far more availability uh, of uh, these high-tech devices. Uh, some of them are expensive, some less expensive, and they are being used. Now, are they being used uh, in terms of being integrated into daily lessons? 
In some cases, yes. In some subject areas at the secondary level, yes. Uh, are they altering how teachers usually teach? I don't think so. And it feels a little. Does that respond to your question? It does. And it felt to me a little bit like there are sort of two competing ideas that there's some tension between. One is that um, if the if if the computer were really helping to alter the student's educational experience, teachers would figure out how to integrate it more. The other being that schools as a system generally tend to resist change. So I, I, it's hard for me to know where to land in terms of an understanding because I tend to be part of a group that's sort of passionately interested in the use of computers, feeling that that will transform education. But then I read your material and I feel a little sheepish about taking that side. <laughs> well, uh, let me uh, let me point out a couple things where, uh, uh, and then we can have this continuing dialogue. Number one. Schools are not resistant to change. Schools do change. I mean, there is no question about it. Look at what's happened under No Child Left Behind with the testing and accountability in the U.S. There have been a lot of changes in the curriculum, in how teachers teach. In fact, it reinforces certain kinds of teaching. Now, the second, the second piece of that is that a lot of these uh, high-tech devices are being used, but not in the way that passionate people like Steve necessarily want. They may not be used imaginatively, creatively, and they may be used in effect uh, like unimaginatively. So this is very frustrating to a lot of uh, folks who want to see teachers kind of break free of these kinds of shackles and really use it in creative ways. Now, I see some teachers who do that. I've been very impressed with a small minority of teachers. What I see is that you know there are basically three three uh, divisions that I would make among teachers. There is a small minority of the kind of teachers that you would love to take for a, uh, take out for a beer. They are terrific. Then there's a large middle group that are now using uh, what I see as these high-tech devices more than they did five, ten years ago. And then there is a smaller group, not as large as it used to be, of teachers who don't see high-tech devices in, uh, as a future in their lessons. Maybe you want to respond to that. No, I think that's, uh, and again, I said sheepish, but I think in a, in a positive way, meaning I've, part of what I've loved about your material is the degree to which it feels uh, thoughtful and, and not looking for easy answers and, and willing to kind of look at the actual uh, data to determine what's really taking place. Um, there was one other piece of this that we haven't mentioned yet that I'm not sure how it fits in necessarily, but it's the role of commercial companies. That was the other theme I, I was reflecting on from the previous conversation. And, and it, this certainly came up last night in the discussion that we had. What's your view currently of the role that commercial companies are playing in this dialogue about technology? Well, I, I really don't follow that very much. When I go into schools, as I do, you know, I see the, the presence of a lot of vendors, uh, both you know, software, hardware, 
they're all over, but they've been all over in schools uh, for decades, you know, uh, when, uh, in terms of textbooks, uh, uh, instructional materials. So it's not um, – I see the vendors. I see the push and everything. Uh, there's no question about it. But right now, I, I wouldn't say that I have been startled by what I have seen. Uh, I may not be the best uh, eyewitness to that, however. Understood. So um, Collins and Halverson, uh, reading their book sort of made me feel as though we were about to experience, uh, I mean, and they say pretty specifically, that there's going to be a revolution in education. That in the industrial age, there, then we had a revolution in education to reflect industrial values. Now in the knowledge age, we're going to see really dramatic changes to, um, to education because of that, that change. How do you respond to that? Sure. Am I allowed to snicker? Yes, please. <laughs> That's why you're on the show. I'm, I'm snickering. I'm snickering now. Look, I'm 75 years old. I've been in public school work since 1955. So that's 55 years, coming up on 55 years. I've heard that over and over and over again. And public schools are not built to be transformed. Yes, there was a transformation when the one-room schoolhouse gave way to the age-graded school roughly in the middle the latter part of the 19th century. The junior highs and high schools come in in the first few decades of the 20th century. That didn't transform public schooling. What it did was to make it more of a pyramid, an elongated kind of stretch where a student's career would begin somewhere around kindergarten, first grade, and would go all the way through the 12th grade. But transformations uh, particularly triggered by new technologies. Uh, I, I just haven't seen them in my lifetime, and nor do I expect it to occur. And it's just the repetitiveness of the claim that, uh, that permits me to kind of laugh behind my hand. So I'm enjoying this immensely. And in part because I think <laughs> one answer to this would be, well, they'll keep making the claim. And then when it is true, you know, of course, the, the claim will have been made. The other is that, um, uh, that, I, that I went through the change in the late 80s, early 90s that we experienced in business, that uh, where the computer had yes. for a period of time really not done anything. And then all of a sudden, we really kind of revamped everything we did around the computer. And so I still hold this sense, uh, because of my personal experience, that the same could occur in education given the right tools that actually become so compelling that we, we want to revamp. Uh, you want me to respond to that? Well, Steve? sure. This is uh, it's fun. You're, you're not able to see the, the the very rapid chat here from all kinds of uh, people responding, and I'm going to get to that in a minute. But yeah, you know, please do. And and again, uh, you know, I really value your perspective because I think you're so thoughtful on this issue. The fundamental mistake that uh, people make when they talk about 
school education, formal education being revolutionized or transformed. Their fundamental error in thinking is that they believe that schools are built around one mission, which is for uh, all students to gain knowledge and skills. Now that is extremely important uh, mission. But public schools have had important missions in addition to that for a public tax-supported schools in the U.S. have had multiple missions, of which one I just said, but the other which is of making citizens, uh, of socializing uh, children and youth into the core values of, of the community, uh, of uh, making schools uh, uh, avenues of social mobility. All of those things are looked upon as by people that they expect public tax-supported schools to do all those things. So the air that people make who are committed to high-tech devices or some kind of technological transformation of schools, uh, and this is what Christensen does in Disruptive Innovations and, and the new books that have come out by Chubb and Moe, all about somehow there's going to be a revolution, they neglect to look at public schools as having multiple missions that taxpayers and voters and parents desperately want them to uh, fulfill, such as making sure that kids take their turn in crowds, that people are kind to one another, if possible, that kids in kindergarten can, in this case, take turns. You, you get what I mean, Steve. I do. And I, and I think what's interesting here is, uh, and, and maybe it gives us a chance to, uh, to come to a little bit of middle ground, is that um, Rich and Alan mentioned all of the other forms in which um, teaching and learning are taking place that are outside of traditional public education and the degree to which those are uh, potentially uh, becoming alternate ways for teaching and learning. and. Uh, and, and have the potential ultimately to inform traditional public education, but are, where that change is actually taking place outside. And maybe that's a little bit what... Uh, I, I think that... Go ahead. Yeah, no, I, I would agree with that. That uh, uh, there's a more of a multifaceted approach to learning, and there's uh, slightly more acceptance now that a lot of learning goes on outside of school. It, certainly, John Dewey knew that uh, uh, for uh, well over a century ago. So I, I accept all of that. And uh, uh, what I'm talking about basically is that uh, is is that the vast majority of kids who go to public schools in the U.S. are going to be in public schools, and that the transformation or revolution that people predict will occur uh, will not appear that way to most kids and teachers. So I didn't have you on the show. Uh, in fact, I don't consider myself a really good proponent uh, on, on either side. That's why I like doing the interviews. So uh, let's move on a little and talk about it. When you and I okay. talked before, I pulled out this quote from my blog. And it was, I did ask Dr. Cuban specifically about blogs and wikis, but got the sense that these aren't, are technologies that are not, fully, not yet fully on his radar as educational tools. And if I'm looking at your blog correctly, it looks like you started your blog in August. How's that experience been? Yes. Uh, of the blog, mm -hmm. oh, it's been a delight for me. Uh, uh, 
Uh, do you want me to say a few words about that? I do. Okay. Uh, basically, I have uh, uh, three uh, three rules for myself. One is that what I write is clear. The second is that it has to be less than uh, 800 words, and the third is that I take a position in it. And uh, and what I do is write about uh, issues around school reform and classroom practice because what I'm interested in is bridging policy and classroom practice. So that permits me then to uh, to write about a myriad of different kinds of topics, and it has been a delight for me. Uh, part of it, the delight, of course, is getting emails and um, uh, and comments, uh, and uh, and the, the discipline of trying to be very uh, crisp and coherent in a short burst. Uh, I enjoy that too. So it's been great. Now, uh, when I've been in the public schools, I see some teachers uh, talk about wikis. I even see some teachers, uh, a lot of teachers use blogs now, student blogs. Uh, but at the same time, I've not been overly impressed by the mainstream of teachers and kids using these things. Well, good. And I didn't mean to shift us back into that area, because I was actually interested in uh, the kinds of things that are coming out in your blog. And I, and I love that you have those three goals for yourself, because I think you, you clearly succeed. And, and I and I read through some of the posts uh, and, and really appreciated the fact that it felt like you were both clear and uh, and, and making it clear what what you felt the position should be or what your position was. So can I mention a couple of those and have yeah. you comment on them? Sure. So one was that you said nobody really knows how to turn around failing schools. Do you want to elaborate on that? Oh sure. Uh, if you uh, uh, there is a lot of knowledge out there, and there are a lot of uh, people who style themselves as experts, who say that uh, we can turn around uh, schools that have uh, uh, performed uh, very poorly for long periods of time. And uh, the point that I'm making uh, is that there is no recipe for any given school because schools have different contexts in which their failure has occurred. And so this makes it uh, a kind of almost a charlatan if anyone says, I can turn around these schools. Or some universities try to prepare turnaround experts. So the thing, uh, I wrote one posting on, uh, on the dirty secrets of turnaround schools. And one of those dirty secrets is that Yes, there are ways to turn around a particular school and get low-scoring, uh, a low-scoring school to uh, to reach into the moderate to high scoring, but that school doesn't mean it'll stay turned around, and that becomes a problem. The instability of the changes that occur in schools, and the second issue, the second dirty secret, is that. The kind of expertise and uh, the skills, the capacity to do that is not spread very, uh, is spread very thinly among educators. There aren't those large cadres of people who can, like SWAT teams, go into these particular chronically low-performing schools and simply get the job done, dust their hands off, and then leave. 
there just aren't those kinds of people around because those schools are not attractive venues for a lot of experienced people. And that's why it's so hard to staff schools like that. Sure, you bring in coaches, you bring in experts, and they can make a difference over a short period of time. But you still have the teachers who are going to be there year in and year out, and they are the ones who have to carry uh, the water to make that school stay better rather than just score well for one or two years. So again, Larry, I apologize that you can't see this just incredibly prolific chat discussion going on. But I do want to ask Jane Cross, if you wouldn't mind raising your hand. I'd like to give you the mic, Jane. And can you describe uh, the reaction to Larry's post that you are aware of today or anyone else who would like to contribute? Okay, Jane, I'm giving you the mic, so go ahead and uh, click on your mic button to turn yourself on there. See your mic lit up, but I don't know I'm not hearing you. Can you hear me now? Yes. Okay, I'm going to turn the volume down. Oh, I can hear you, yes. Okay, hi. Um, yeah. Um, one of my um, Twitter buddies and um, a, a, a friend on Facebook is um, Chris Lehman, who's the principal of the Science Leadership Academy in Philadelphia. And he's um, a really thoughtful educator. He's been very generous. Yeah. I pay a lot of attention yeah. to what he says. And um, this morning I logged into Facebook and I saw that he had a post where he said, um, um, basically, um, Larry Cuban's at it again, <laughs> and um, he just linked to <laughs> he just linked to your uh, most recent post, um, and it just engendered such a, a great conversation. It was um, it, it was your post called "Getting Students to Think Requires More Than a Wash and Wax Job," and so I think you were talking about the fact that there, you can't do an overlay of um, shiny, great thinking on top of a jalopy. And um, um, on his Facebook link, yeah, he, he... that's a good summary. Yeah, well, <laughs> it went on for um, um, people just had a really kind of um, lively debate right in Facebook, which is a place where I'm not used to seeing that happen. Um, and so it was uh, like 25 <laughs> um, individuals um, or, or, or um, comments um, to hit to his... Um, to his statement. So that's just another way where um, if we're paying attention to the right things and um, discussing them, maybe maybe that's how we're going to um, get wind in our sales. So Larry, do you want to describe a little bit about that post? What I didn't read it. Yeah, it, uh, it's basically uh, a straight out kind of uh, uh, organizational argument. Uh, ab about how hard it is to get teachers and kids to focus on thinking when everyone wants that to happen. And I look at the high school and I say that basically the way the time of the high school is structured, the textbooks, the testing, the teacher load, those are structural kinds of things that teachers and kids have no say-so over at all. They are done by policy decisions uh, in, in, uh, in organizing the high school. And they have enormous impact on, how, uh, on whether or not teachers can do any of the inquiry, any of the kind of investigation, any of the kind of creative kinds of, way of uh, ways of getting kids to think. 
And so it's an argument that a lot of people uh, I think are familiar with, but they don't look at it that way. They look more at the individual level of the teacher. If only the teacher worked harder. If only the kids would be pay more attention, then we would have more critical thinking in schools. And I'm arguing that there are structural factors. It's a familiar argument that these structural factors have enormous influence on what teachers and kids do. So this is partly why I like talking to you so much, because it feels as though you're not taking a simple position and you're, you're looking at something with some depth. Jane, was Chris in disagreement with that? Oh, no, I, w I wouldn't um, say so. He just um, raised, the, raised the statement. And um, I'll just tell you what he said. He said, No, he just said Larry Cuban on why critical thinking skills aren't taught in school. And then some of the comments are... Um... Well, he said that Larry was at it again. That, yeah. that to me sounded <laughs> no. a little negative. Was, no, it, was it intended say... as negative? No, I don't think it was negative at all. I think it's... Um, um, it, 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 I think he's in agreement that there, there are, it's difficult that there are structures that interfere with um, um, your ability to um, kind of, you know, have the conditions that, that are supportive of critical thinking and, and real engagement. And um, I think one of Chris's um, amazing opportunities was the fact that he got to start a school from scratch. And I think that when you go into the Science Leadership Academy, you're, you're seeing um, critical thinking engaged um, everywhere you look. Okay, um, so there is some commentary in the chat that, uh, that Chris was not being critical of Larry. And yeah. um, is, that, is that Diane who's saying yeah. um, that she spoke about it with Chris today? OK, so Jane, thanks for doing that. I want to yeah. move on if we can. Appreciate your, your willingness to share there. So one of the other things that you said in the blog was that um, how teachers teach and the best ways of teaching are really not known by policymakers, researchers, and parents. Can we talk about that for a minute? Well, let's see. Uh, is that um, uh, I, I forget? Is that a direct quote, Steve? Gosh, I, I thought it was close. It, but why don't you modify it to what you actually believe? <laughs> Yeah, uh, basically uh, the, the point that I'm making is that uh, the people who make the major policy decisions around how time should be structured in school, uh, what materials teachers are to use, what technologies teachers are, uh, should be deployed for teachers and kids to use, those decisions by policymakers tend to be uninformed about how teachers usually teach every day. What uh, a lot of policymakers have in their heads, these decision makers in the U.S., uh, let's say at the school board level, at the state level, or at the federal level, just remember their student days because most policymakers do not come out of teaching. Some do, but most do not. So as a consequence, they, are, they tend to be quite unfamiliar with what goes on in classrooms in a routine way when teachers are expected to work uh, at the high school level, five periods a day with 20 to 30 or more kids. At the elementary level, five to six hours with one group of kids. They, are, they tend to be unfamiliar with uh, all of the constraints, pressures, and delights that do occur in those situations. 
Now, parents, of course, will know from their own experience and from what their kids tell them about school, unless they're adolescents and the kids are teenagers, they're not going to say too much about school. But in any event, uh, it's this lack of direct uh, knowledge about what goes on in classrooms that proves to be uh, a, a kind of obstacle to uh, getting uh, a lot of policies that would be helpful to teachers uh, put into practice. Well, I found that uh, particularly interesting. I'm going to just tell you that in the chat, uh, so it's Diana who, who let us know that Chris was not being critical, uh, who then mentions that uh, Chris bought a class set of your book, Tinkering Toward Utopia, is that for his modern educational <laughs> yes. theory class, and it was delivered. The set was delivered today. So you have obviously you have somebody who uh, was not intending to to be critical. I don't think didn't sound like it. <laughs> no, Steve. Uh, uh, I uh, on the blog they have pingbacks or whatever they call it. I'm not quite sure if that's a correct word, but uh, what they have this Chris has been very complimentary. And so I, I did not take any of his comments to, uh, uh, to be negative at all. And, and even if he were negative, I'm just glad that he's reading the damn stuff. <laughs> okay, so um, I wanted to talk a little bit about the projects that you're working on, uh, one of which is the uh, study sure. of school reform in Austin. And, uh, and apparently um, the, yes. there's going to be a book about this called As Good As It Gets. Do you want to kind of tell us what, what you've been seeing there? Sure. Uh, this was a, uh, a case study of a big city system that had one superintendent for a decade from 1999 to 2009. And what I did, uh, I, I was contracted to write a, a description in history of the Austin schools for not only that, uh, those 10 years, but beginning in the segregated uh, schools and the desegregation that began in the 1950s. So I looked at Austin over a 50-year period, but with a, a high concentration on the last 10 years of this particular superintendent's reign. And uh, I point out that a lot of gains, a lot of successes, a lot of small victories did occur in Austin. But uh, there is a but. Uh, what also became obvious to me is that in the past 10 years, as much as there were many, many gains, there were some schools that were chronically low-performing at the elementary and secondary level. They tended to be mostly minority and poor, and they could not be extracted from that kind of chronic low-performance. And uh, even in the midst of what I would consider very enlightened, very wise policies and practices by the Austin Board of Trustees and Superintendent. So that's why the title, As Good As It Gets, and that, you, uh, that there are conditions beyond which public schools can uh, need to have far more concrete uh, help than expecting schools to cure everything by themselves. You don't even have to buy the book now. That's what the book's about. Oh, I'm sure we'll all order sets for the different classes. <laughs> Was, were you talking about uh, that, the, the Austin uh, materials when you talked about how 
uh, slow and labor-intensive the process is of actually trying to improve a school? Yes. Uh, it's Austin. It's also uh, all of the schools that I've worked with over the past uh, half century as a teacher, as a superintendent, and as a researcher. Yes. So the Austin, the Austin book then is a culmination of lots of knowledge and experience that I have had about school districts and individual schools. Yeah. So it looks like you have another book coming out in 2010, uh, Against the Odds, and, and this is yes. um, related to um, Mapleton, where a large school district was converted into several small ones. Do you want to talk about that? Yes, uh, I do appreciate uh, your mentioning the book, Steve. That's very kind of you. <laughs> uh, the, um, um, the Mapleton story is uh, a very different story than Austin. Austin has over 80,000 kids. Mapleton has 6,000 kids, mostly Latino. And a rookie superintendent in 2001 was uh, tried uh, very hard with her executive team and school board to kind of take a chronically low-performing high school, it's a one high school district, to take that one high school and uh, subdivided, and she and the board did do that, into six or uh, seven uh, small high schools. They did it with uh, uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation money, and they now have seven small high schools uh, that came out of that original one academic comprehensive high school there. And they did it within a, uh, a five-year period. And uh, the book is about that. It's called Against the Odds because one wouldn't expect the implementation of that to have gone the way it did. And that superintendent and school board have gone further, and they've taken the uh, small number of elementary schools that they have, and they've converted them into choices that parents can now choose from around the district. So you now have a small district that is literally a district of school choice. Uh, the book is about the high school and the conversion of that high school into small ones. And, um, they're at a very, uh, we argue that the implementation was very successful in that these small high schools now exist. There's a high tech, uh, there's a new tech high school, a small high school. There's a coalition of essential schools, small high school. Um, there's a, uh, there's a, a small high school that is a replica of the one in Providence, Rhode Island called uh, the Met. There's an uh, expeditionary learning small high school. It's an amazing uh, 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 thing that they have done in that uh, small district. Uh, they're now at a very difficult point because their commitment was that the test scores, uh, the state test scores, would eventually rise, and that ki those kinds of gains aren't there yet. Uh, but uh, it is a fascinating story that. Um, uh, my colleague Gary Lichtenstein, uh, who really uh, brought this team together, of which I'm one member, uh, to research and document uh, this process. So you, I think you said that it, uh, the outcome was different than one might expect. Do you feel it was a positive outcome? It, the positive outcome is that converting one high school into 
uh, a number of small high schools is not an easy task. This uh, uh, superintendent and her executive team and the board did do that. To sustain them, it's now been eight years since she became superintendent and about five years since uh, this process began. And so uh, that in of itself, implementing it, is, uh, is very important. But implementation does not mean that academic achievement has yet improved for that low performing district. And that is where they are at that point right now. And they're still working hard to make sure that uh, teachers and kids are going to be doing better. And that is, uh, and we, we take it up to the point where they are now. Uh, we do not say that the implementation automatically led to academic achievement because we didn't have that data at all and it wasn't there. So this is so interesting because the story that you've just told, I, I heard almost verbatim from a superintendent a couple of weeks ago at the National School Board Association T plus L meeting. Uh, I'm thinking it was maybe in North Carolina. I, I can't remember, but it was almost identical. There was a new tech school. Uh, I don't know that there was a big picture school, but there was uh, you know, there were a variety of schools. And um, if I'm remembering correctly, you know, he said that they had very definitely seen a, uh, an improvement using this um, this concept of of creating a school choice. I'm wondering if anybody in the chat is a part of one of these uh, districts or has experienced this and would want to make a comment about it. Um, and please feel free to raise your hand and, and take the mic. We are going to switch the Q&A in a minute. Uh, so if you have questions that have been in the chat and I haven't seen them, now's your chance to either repost them or raise your hand and ask for the microphone. Um, and, and Good Allen's raised his hand right off the bat. While we're doing so, I want to bring us a little bit full circle around if I can, Larry, because it, you also say in your about me in the blog, that you're studying a high school where teachers and students have had one-to-one -one laptops for the past four years. So tell me how that's yes. been. It's been a marvelous experience for me. Uh, I, I have uh, uh, the principal and the faculty have been very welcoming, and I've been there for uh, a fairly long time, uh, beginning last year. This is a school that, uh, that I and a few grad students studied 10 years ago when they, were, uh, they had um, uh, uh, computer labs. And now I'm coming back to the same school, and now they have laptops. So uh, uh, to study a school at two different points in time is an unusual opportunity in research. Are you finding any? So, that, so it's been a marvelous opportunity. Are you finding any sort of clear lessons you'd want to share with us? Well, I can't say they're lessons, but I can tell you that it's clear to me uh, between the smart boards and the kids being issued laptops that they are in uh, fairly moderate to heavy use around the school, outside of the classroom, and inside the classroom of, uh, I would say, moderate use far more than 10, 11 years ago uh, when we studied the school. So there's been a, uh, a strong increase in, in student and teacher use. There's no question in my mind about that. And with that now, strong increase in use, that I, use yeah, good, please. Uh, whether that uh, increase in use has altered 
uh, uh, dominant ways of teaching, whether that'll lead to, or whether that has had any influence on academic achievement, uh, I cannot say. Okay, so I'm going to turn the mic over to Alan. I don't know if you've done this before, Alan, but um, in order, turn your mic on. Mic on you. There you go. There you go. Yep. Can you hear me? Yes. Yes. Okay. Well, I'm 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 been in the Boston system, kind of on the outside of it as a kind of a consultant for about 30 years. So I've watched the technology change from really very primitive to, of course, what we have today, which is quite sophisticated and available. And um, I've also been involved with the school reform where the in Boston we have broken up the larger schools into small schools, small learning communities. We've had um, a lot of that going on throughout the district. And I've seen, you know, just a tremendous amount of resistance to the change at the teaching level, and I think a lot of it has to do with the skepticism that there's so many new ideas that come forward with them, but they're not fully implemented with what are the, not, the needed resources and extra time and so forth that um, teachers would need and, and to develop the proper curriculum and, the, and uh, get comfortable in the same way that they feel they need to be to be in charge of their classes. So I think that there's a, a real disconnect between what people propose and, and, and what they fund and then actually what they are able to deliver to support these kinds of changes. And so there's been a tremendous amount of skepticism about it and resistance as a result. Because they've learned that if they resist and just kind of ignore, it goes away. So I agree, I agree with Larry that, uh, yes, there is more technology in the uh, schools. And, and I think the kids are, are, would love to use it more than, the, uh, than even the, the schools do. We see uh, kids, uh, we see uh, computers blocked, the internet blocked. Uh, even in media classes where, they, where they're supposed to be teaching media, kids can't get on the internet and actually have any kind of aha moments or any kind of real support uh, to learn how to use the internet properly. Yet at the same time, they can walk around with their cell phone and get on the internet and um, and be using it any way they would like, not necessarily uh, with a lot of purpose. So that's just an observation. But in terms of the actual um, changes in the schools, they're really struggling and they keep reinventing themselves um, and uh, without a whole lot of commitment and conviction about the vision that they pick up each time. So thanks for that, Alan. Did you want to respond in any way, um, Larry? It's a familiar story uh, that Alan uh, lays out and so uh, he said it very uh, very succinctly, and uh, I would only be repeating. Uh, and I say that this is how many years after uh, a lot of this stuff has been written about? It's been decades, and uh, this is Alan's experience. So I have no more to say about that. Good. So we had another hand raised. Uh, Manaj, I'm going to give you the mic. You can do the same thing. You click on the microphone button, turn your mic on. Can you hear me? Yes, we can. Perfect. Um, 
So yeah, my name is Manoj, and uh, I've worked on learning management system LMSs at McGraw Hill, and I'm thinking of a startup company. And the question for Larry is, what would be good um, a startup to do in the education technology space um, that may, you know, yield um, quick results and you know, good hits and um, you know, get good results immediately. Low-hanging fruit, so to say. <laughs> That's precisely the kind of question that a policymaker asks. That uh, is is basically, jeez, uh, I don't want to hurt this gentleman's feelings at all. What can I say? I uh, we're all adults uh, here, Larry. Go it's ahead. It's the kind of question. <laughs> well, it's the kind of question that teachers. Uh, uh, who have believed in conspiratorial theories would add, uh, would say this is what goes on. These policymakers, these software uh, uh, folks, they are looking for quick results, and they don't care about the process of teaching and learning that's far more complex. And so, so uh, a business-minded entrepreneur who asked me that kind of question. If they were in my office or they come to my home, I would say, let's have a beer. Let's talk about something else because it's a question that is not really applicable uh, uh, in a should way to public schools. So I, Sorry about that. Well, no, and, I, and um, I, aside from the fact that I mispronounced his name and now you've, you've um, um, Made that statement. We were, I'm going to keep, give him the mic again, so he can he can surely come back and and, and ask a follow up if you'd like. But, but you must be seeing some ways in which you feel that we could be better supporting existing kinds of computer use or promoting use that's not as widespread, where you feel like it does make a difference in in that complex world sure, of teaching and learning. Course. Yeah, is that for me, Steve? It is. I'm kind of softballing it back to you. Okay, uh, of course. You know, but what I'm going to suggest is not any low-hanging fruit. What I'm going to suggest is not even necessary, uh, necessarily going to prove that you can get high achievement. But if you have uh, a site-based or school-based uh, technical and professional support for teachers, uh, do you remember the old ACOT experiment, Steve? I don't know it, no. It's Apple Classroom of Tomorrow. They did it in the early 80s where they gave uh, uh, laptops to kids and the parents. And what they discovered was that teachers learn best from other teachers. That teachers trust the wisdom of other teachers. And so if you were to have uh, a Trained teachers helping other teachers, you would have far more integration of uh, of, uh, of laptop uh, and other kind of hardware devices into lessons. Pardon me. Oh, uh, Manoush turned his uh, mic back on, and there was a little bit of an echo. But keep going. Uh, so what I'm saying is that yes, there are ways to help teachers, but these are these ways are respectful of teachers, and they're not uh, they're not coming from vendors or policymakers who say, you know, what's the best way to get quick results. 
uh, and teachers have felt disrespected for uh, for decades. Uh, and uh, so that's why I don't want to be a party to any kind of uh, effort that would try to increase that. But the, what your question basically uh, gets me to say again and again that if you can get teachers to, uh, to work with other teachers at the school site rather than one-shot staff development kinds of things, and, but that's kind of expensive, and a lot of uh, policymakers or entrepreneurs don't want to go that route at all. So I'm going to let Manoush respond, but before we do so, uh, I visited a classroom in Michigan City, Indiana, in part because I'm, I have this uh, interest in open source software, and they've implemented open source software in the, in the schools there. And, and one of the lessons I took away from it, Larry, was that they had made a commitment when they were going to put computers into classrooms that they would make sure that every classroom within a certain subject, if they were going to put computers in, they put it in for all of those classrooms in that subject area so that the teachers could actually work together to figure out how to use the computers well with their learning materials. So it sounds like what you're saying would be supportive of that kind of, a, of a, an initiative or that uh, particular way of implementing. Tell me, Steve, uh, you've been around. Isn't that a sensible way of doing any workplace thing that you want people to be high performing? You give them the tools and you tell them to work together and you give them support. That's just sensible. Yeah, and I, and I left that uh, particular school just thinking about how, how, uh, how impressed I was uh, with that approach. And, and they didn't actually put computers in all the classrooms. They, the sure. first that they chose where they did the English classrooms. They had all the English teachers. And then they said, we know this, that you're going to be reworking your curricula and you're going to be thinking about how you teach, so we want you to be able to do that together. Manoj, did you want to respond in any way? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, Larry, I didn't mean any disrespect to uh, the teachers. Of course, they're, you know, they're the ones doing the hard work. And, uh, my low-hanging fruit comment was based on the fact that for an entrepreneur, there's only very limited time and window to do work. Otherwise, you know, you don't have the funding and those kind of things. Um, so the, the real question was, how does an entrepreneurial organization help the teachers? And I think you sort of answered that by helping collaborate and the teachers answer other teachers' questions and things like that. And so, you know, in a sort of participatory way. But if you have anything else to add, Please, I'm all yours. You know, we're actually out of time. And uh, Larry, I want to give you an out, okay. depending on your timing. And you're uh, no, that's OK. Uh, do you want to respond? No, that's OK. That's all right. OK, so uh, I do want to keep a commitment to you that, that we would do this for an hour. And uh, just so you know. That's correct, and I'm getting tired. <laughs> <laughs> Chris Lehman from Plant uh, Leadership Academy actually has logged on, and he's in the room. Um, and Chris will, will give you the choice of sticking around if you'd like. We're going we're gonna to let Larry go if he wants, and I think he will. And so let's clap for just another fascinating evening. And I'm um, using the little clapping hand at the bottom of the participant window. And Larry, 105 people are expressing their appreciation for your being on tonight and for the gracious and thoughtful work that you do. And um, thank you, those of you who are coming Steve. tonight. Uh, when Larry goes, please don't feel that you have to go. Uh, thanks.
We'll stick around for another 15 or 20 minutes if you'd like to stay in the chat room and chat, kind of decompress. Um, thanks, Larry. Thanks you for coming. Thanks to Illuminate for providing this room. And I'm going to leave the schedule of events coming up on the whiteboard. And when you exit the room uh, and do so, you'll notice that a, that a survey comes up. And if you'd fill that out, it helps us to make sure that these sessions are working for you. Larry, are you still on? Uh, yes. Yeah, so so thank really you very fun. much, Steve, for having so, me. Okay. Okay. Thanks, Larry. Have a great night. Appreciate your coming. You too. Right. Bye. Bye. So, Jan, I'm gonna. You have the mic. Please go ahead. Jan, we're not hearing you again. So, I don't know if there was something you did last time to. Okay. Bring you down there. there you now? go. Yep. Um, I feel like I painted Chris with the wrong brush, and I was probably <laughs> overlaying my own <laughs> perceptions of um, Larry Cuban when I said that Chris said, here he is again, or here he goes again. But um, he did um, um, start a really lively discussion um, around the, the conditions that, um, that interfere with our ability to um, develop critical thinking in kids. And um, that's really what the discussion was about, with people agreeing that there are, um, are impediments that are just so structural and hard to get around that, um, that, um, that it's a challenge. <laughs> so I thought that it, I, I'm probably the only one who read the, uh, the book from the interview last night, but that Rethinking Education in the Age of Technology book, I thought it did a really good job as well of kind of painting this picture of how systems uh, can actually end up um, prohibiting the very end result that you want. And, um, and, and that in order for systems to survive and to accomplish their goals, you know, they, they become a little intractable and, and things get set in place. And in the case of, say, a 50 to 55 minute time period, all kinds of other decisions get made that have to fit into that. And all of a sudden you have this, like they describe in the book, this jigsaw puzzle where you really can't change something because it impacts so many other things. So Chris, you're certainly welcome to take the mic if you'd like. I'm giving it to you now. I don't know if you've done this before, but to do so, you would click on the larger microphone button in the audio area. There you go. What I do? <laughs> <laughs> you got a lot of good questions. Were people bad to me to, were people bad mouthing to me to one of my no, favorite No, Chris, Chris <laughs> this morning you had the most um, kind of professional conversation in Facebook that I've ever seen with a, a lot of people when you posted about Larry's latest post about um, the challenges of, of driving critical thinking. And um, so we were just talking about that. So Chris, I turned your mic off because there was an echo, but just turn it back on to talk. Gotcha. Um, yeah, I uh, actually have to be a little quiet. My kids just went to sleep in my office. It's not far from their bedroom. So um, yeah, I mean, to me, Larry is, you know, and I, I, like I said, I'm really sorry I, I wasn't here tonight. Um, Larry is one of our great thinkers. And, and uh, I think that the impediments he puts out there for um, what gets in the way of critical thinking and, and the schools that he mentions, uh, especially in, in that blog post that I, that I linked to, um, are all schools that are doing some really wonderful things towards trying to drive critical thinking. Larry has also, I think, been one of the great sort of techno-skeptics out there um, because he, he doesn't believe in technology for technology's sake. He's one of those people who, you know, 
says it's about the it's about the curriculum. It's about the critical thinking. It's about the reasons to use it, and then you can use it well. And you know, and you know, he wrote one of the original first articles I saw back in like nineteen to like ninety five, ninety four, that talked about the disconnect between promise of technology in the classroom and the use of it. And you know, he kind of made this point that. Everybody says teachers are techno-skeptics, but really teachers are oftentimes among, in their personal lives, among the early adopters of technologies, and they've just never brought that into their classrooms for what were very good reasons. And, and a, that article was sort of a classic to me because even as we built SLA and we sort of looked at how are we going to get these people to use technology, how are we going to get our teachers and our students to use technology authentically and progressively, the things that he talked about, about creating the time, creating the reasons, Creating you know a demand um, and doing it in authentic real ways that allowed us to work better, um, you know, a, a 15, 20 year old article really sort of still uh, um, pointed the way towards a lot of truths that we found. So it's really uh, he's 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 one of my heroes. Well, yeah, and, and I and I think that came through. And thanks for turning your mic off, Chris. I think that came through, and especially Diana helped us by indicating that you had actually ordered a set of his classes. So there was no, it was never left in a way that he would feel that that uh, there was a disagreement. Uh, but I would love to have had uh, Collins and um, uh, Alverson on with with Larry, because I think then you would get some sort of uh, really interesting dialogue. Diana, uh, oh Chris, do you want to mention uh, Educon? Give yourself a plug there. Absolutely. Um, so we've got Educon coming up. We're putting the band back together. Um, you know, we are going to do it again this year. It is July, uh, January 29th through the 31st. Um, it is going to be SLA once again. We have an amazing, amazing, amazing uh, lineup of people coming. And speaking and running sessions and facilitating from Will Richardson and David Warlick and David Jakes and Gary Steger and uh, 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 making it all in Sylvia Martinez, Cheryl Nussbaum Beach, um, just so many amazing people who are going to be giving sessions, which is wonderful. John Becker, uh, Kevin Jarrett did not submit a session this year. We're very sad. Um, yeah, Cheryl's going to be there this year and. Those are all people just facilitating, you know, and these are the folks that usually are doing, you know, 300-person rooms, and of course they're, you know, giving us small sessions in our classrooms, which are really wonderful. Um, we have a lot of new people doing participations. We've got more. We've got a whole lot of teachers doing amazing things this year, and then I am personally um, unbelievably excited about our uh, um, Sunday morning panel, which I think uh, is something that. Hopefully, uh, Larry would actually enjoy, which is Sunday morning for an hour and a half. We are going to be having a discussion. What is the disconnect between uh, policy reform and pedagogy reform? And our speakers are Doug Levin, the newly appointed executive director of CETA, uh, Michael Horn, co-author of Disrupting Class, Linda Roberts, who was the um, head of educational technology under the at the DOE under the Clinton administration. And uh, this is, I'm going to announce this year, it is 99% done, so we haven't made a public announcement, but I'll say uh, Linda Nathan, the founding principal of the Boston Arts Academy, who just published her book, uh, Lessons from an Urban Classroom, um, 
uh, are going to be on that panel. And we're hoping to get at least one more speaker that I can't quite name yet. But uh, that's really exciting. Uh, we have our Friday night panel. Uh, with the question we've tackled this year is what is smart? We've got a group of folks from outside the educational sphere or tangentially related to it talking about that idea. And uh, I saw your question, Jane. Our kids are co. Uh, we have two students who are co-chairs. Our kids will be doing running sessions. They'll be doing all the tech support again. They'll be um, doing all of that stuff. Um, as Diana said, uh, we're going to be announcing all of our sessions. Hopefully, in the you know in the next week or so, we are in the middle of grades, narratives, and parent conferences. So, um, but it is an unbelievably exciting time. Um, we're really, really uh, thrilled. We're going to cap registration this year at 500. So, um, you know, we, you know, I, I think it's one of the things. If you're planning on coming, I would not wait till the last minute to buy your ticket because the school can only hold 500 folks. So, um, we're pretty excited about it. Okay, so that's really yeah, fun. That's really fun. That's uh, January 29th and 30th. Does it go to the 31st? January 29th, 30, and 31. That is correct. And that's in Philadelphia at Science Leadership Academy. Yep. Uh, do you want us to stream anything so that those who are from out of the country can watch? If you do, just let me know, Chris, and I'm glad to come do that. Absolutely. We would love it, actually. We're looking, one of the things that we're struggling with right now is that the school district blocks Educon and won't open it up because they don't like the IRC protocol on the chat. So we need to find a way to stream it uh, that, is, uh, that is doable, so it's a meaning to give you a call, Steve. Yeah, if Illuminate will work, I'd be glad to help. We can okay, so that's, that's a lot of fun. Thanks for coming in, Chris. I'm sure glad oh, to have pleasure. you here. Sorry I got in late. No, no. <laughs> you had to put your kids to bed. That's right. Okay, so uh, anybody else want to decompress at all on um, what Larry said? Thoughts? Uh, you know, certainly uh, part of what I really appreciate about Larry is the, the sophistication of his responses, but not, not, uh, not looking for easy answers. Okay, so Leonard, here you go. You've got the mic now. Oh, you, you left. There you go. So you know how to turn on your mic. You click on the uh, larger mic button in the audio area. Not seeing it yet. Down under the participant window in the chat, depending on your layout. Large button. Sometimes Control F2 if you're on a PC will do I bet. There Is you are. Yep. Okay. Good. Uh, good. So uh, I think the main thing that I get out of this is that Larry is still looking at regular schools and regular classrooms. And a lot of what's happening in really sophisticated tech use is not happening in the most ordinary schools and the most ordinary classrooms, but at the periphery, in virtual schools and home schools, in a lot of high-tech charter schools and the like, and the, as, as Collins and Halverson was saying last night, people are exiting from the public schools in considerable numbers. I mean, Collins, I think, overestimated a 29% uh, you know, uh, rate of uh, growth of homeschooling, but it's very large. So I think that's really where we should be looking. Yeah, and I don't, I don't think he, I, I think that was some common ground there. I mean, I, I think when I brought that up, he, he was willing to concede that there was some common ground there. Um, and certainly for those of us who are interested in this area, that's where we're going to gravitate to look. And I think he's, uh, my sense is he's trying to bring us back to looking also at the bigger picture that there is a certain amount of activity in the traditional public school that's not going to go away. Do you think that's fair? Sure. Yeah. So you sent me some articles today that I haven't had a chance to read. I promised I'd read them on 
a flight somewhere. But you want well, to talk? No, no promises necessary. Just you know, take a peek. <laughs> the, the one on Larry is uh, you know the concept of fundamental educational change, and that's what I'm trying to do there is really undermine his entire conception of organizational change because change is not going to come in school organizations. It's going to come throughout society, and it is coming. And people exiting the schools for a large, for many reasons, but one of them is because the schools are less and less functionally associated with society. That's why you see the growth of home schools and the growth of charter schools. I've told this story before, but uh, you know, I spoke in Pennsylvania a few times last year, and I turned on the radio, and there's Pennsylvania Cyber Charter, Pennsylvania Cyber Charter. Every time I turn on the radio, I heard an ad for it. My so, son graduated from that school. Interesting. So are you in the, are you in Philadelphia area? Yes, I am. Oh, so uh, do you know Chris? Have you guys connected before? No, we haven't, but maybe we can. I, I, I was at Temple. I'm retired now, but I was the head of head of the Education Leadership Department at Temple. Oh, good. So Chris is at Science Leadership Academy, which is a, Chris, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it is a Philadelphia public school, but it has a little bit of special history related to it. Can you, can you tell me more or less where it is, and I'll get in touch. Chris, I'm going to let you do that in the chat. There you go. It's 20 second hour. You're associated with the Franklin Institute, right, Chris? Mm -hmm. Yep. Great. Good. That's, okay. a fun, that's a fun connection. And I'll tell you, and Chris already knows this, but my grandmother was Anna Lancaster, Anna Mendenhall Lancaster. Mm -hmm. Anna Lancaster Mendenhall. So anyway, I have, I have uh, deep roots in that area. I love going to Philadelphia because I get to go to cemeteries and look up mm -hmm. family history. Yeah, I love Lancaster out here. <laughs> well, same family. So um, uh, that's a fun connection, and um, I'm looking forward to, to reading those articles, and I really appreciate your sending them along. Wonderful. And, and hopefully you'll, you'll join us again in some way. Could anybody else want, want to give a reaction to what we saw tonight? So Leonard, if you meant to raise your hand again, I've given you the mic. You're certainly welcome to take it, but you don't need to. So I'm fascinated by the fact that I never used to do these post-show chats, and, and over half the people have stayed. And so I'm guessing that the, this is fulfilling a need. Uh, so I'm certainly glad to do them. Deb, I'm, I'm wondering if it was even maybe your suggestion that we do them. I know it's not. I know enough to know it's not all about me, uh, I, and I know I'm actually I know enough to know that I'm I'm a better interviewer than I am someone being interviewed because I really don't you know have a, a a lot of good answers but I like asking the questions. Well, it's sure fun to have everybody here tonight. If anybody would like to ask a question, that's great. But in a couple of minutes, I think we'll close down. Alan, I know you've scheduled to come on Future of Education later, talk about your school. That's very fun. I don't know that I know the date yet, but if you want to put it in the chat, you can put it down there. Terry, I'm going to hand you the microphone. There you go. Okay, I'm a I'm a infuriated race to the top kind of a person here. Uh, I'm just wondering what people think about this gigantic uh, Reward being dangled in front of the entire country, and, and what it's going to mean for schools. And, you know, 
of SLA, for example, and, and other schools, what it's going to mean for progressive schools and what it's going to mean for especially super poor schools that may not have the consultants, will not have the consultants to put together the great plans to, to drag in the stimulus money for the race to the top. It looks like Chris raised his hand, so Chris, go ahead if you wanted to respond. Sure. I, um, I mean, I think race to the top. I mean, number one, I think the worst thing about anything wrong with race to the top is it's full school. It's not that much money. It's a big amount of money in the grid. But it is the amount of money that you can get from it is actually the end of the day pretty And, you know, the ridiculous piece of it states are bending a little backwards their policies for things at the end of the day. If you look at it, it's a very small piece of the um, I think it's ridiculous. So Chris, your audio is going in and out, and I think maybe you lowered your voice or oh, moved a little away that. from the mic, but uh, we heard most of what you said. You could maybe repeat a synopsis if you wanted to. Sure. The quick version is I think at the end of the day, states are heading over backwards to meet these requirements, and at the end of the day, it, it doesn't mean a lot of money. Um, this is going to affect a very few number of schools, a very few number of districts, or if they try and spread it large across the state, it's a very small amount of money. And it is essentially, they are bribing states to do merit pay and, and charter schools um, for, at the end of the day, what is very little money to support it. It is, you know, the worst, you know, whether people agree with NCLB or not, there was no, you know, it was without question an unfunded mandate. What this is is an unfunded reward, um, and I, I, you know, I'm kind of shocked by it. I'm kind of, you know, it is. Uh, I think educators and state people at the state level, even at the district level, um, can't believe they're being offered any money. So they're sort of fawning all over this. I also think that if this was done over during the Republican administration, the education establishment would have been up in arms over it. And because it happens to be happening under a Democratic administration. Um, I think, by and large, the education establishment is a state of the wheel. Um, this is a very, very radical shift in education policy that is being, that is being um, you know, sort of pushed with, uh, you know, with a carrot angle and part of it for money. And I, for one, am offended by it. Um, this, should be, this should be deliberative. If we're going to make these kinds of changes, this should not be something done without debate. This should not be something done without understanding the issues that go with it, and there should be some research to suggest that merit pay and or charter schools are fundamentally better than what we already have. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm incredibly disappointed. I can't believe that someone who's in the government um, on his, his education person campaign is now peddling what I believe to be a very shallow education policy. And I'm incredibly disappointed in President and uh, what's going on right now. I, I'm really disappointed. So Deb, I'm going to give you the mic. Go ahead. You're so shy about talking, but your sound's not coming through. I don't know if you hear my comment. I can see your mic is on. Deb, if you're talking, I'm not hearing it. Give it a try again, or I don't know if you've done the. It oh, would help go. if I plugged it in, wouldn't it? <laughs> I didn't have it plugged in. I was trying to be quiet tonight. But I have to agree with the gentleman that just spoke, and I don't know how we get our voice because it's really sad. And one of the things that I read up on it was about the fact that the money wouldn't go to school districts that didn't have a 
um, assessment vehicle for teachers that was based on student performance. And that surprised me also. We all want student performance, but what are we going to set as the guideline or the statistical analysis that's going to be based on that performance? So it's disappointing. I found the gentleman tonight um, interestingly on target. And I, we often hear that schools go around in circles, and I'd like to think that we're more like the inside of a snail shell. And hopefully the circle gets larger and larger as we progress. OK, thanks, Deb. Wouldn't be the same without you chiming in now. You've become a regular. So I've actually got a family commitment that I need to, to start preparing for. Seems like we're maybe ready to wrap up. Uh, might be interesting to do uh, to think about what kinds of sessions we could do. Again, I'm going to be gone for two weeks, so I apologize. We'll uh, be doing much during that time, but uh, December should be fun, and then uh, come January, we're going to have some great sessions coming up. So thanks for coming on tonight, everybody. Thanks for being here. Uh, if you just close your window out, you'll log off, or you can go up to File and Exit. And if you don't, in a couple of minutes, you'll notice that I actually um, bump everybody out of the room in order for the recording to process. Have a great night. Take care, everyone. Good night. <laughs>